John 17. We're going to do a little bit of Bible hopping today, not too bad, but I'm also going to want you in Romans 3 and 1 Thessalonians 4, so I don't know if you want to go ahead and mark all of those places, but uh, let's begin by asking the Lord's blessing on our time together. All right, let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, thanking you for setting your love upon us and giving us to him that we might believe on his name and follow in his will and truly be his disciples. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have shed upon us for, by providing for us such a full and such a complete redemption. Thank you for the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus, which, which washes us deeper than the stains of our sins and makes us whiter than snow in your sight and acceptable before you. There is indeed no other fount we know, nothing but the blood of Jesus, and we thank you for that. And Father, we ask that you would again this morning, through your word, by your spirit, renew and stretch our faith. We desire to please you, Father, with unwavering faith and with a single-minded focus. And I ask that each succeeding week of this study would add to the accomplishment of that goal. Thank you, Father, that in the midst of of troublesome times and perplexity on every hand, that we can have the assurance of eternal life in your Son. We praise and thank you for his finished work on the cross in dying for the sins of the world, and that the gospel is freely given, and that the gate is open to all. All may come freely, without money, without works, and be saved. That is indeed the good news of salvation. Now we ask that you would just be with us, help us to concentrate on this difficult lesson and all the deep doctrine you have to teach us this morning through your word by your spirit. And may Jesus alone be glorified and lifted up in all we have to say and think. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, John 17. John 17, as you know by now if you've been with us, is an example of the kind of intercessory work that Christ does today as he is at his Father's right hand. What I want to do, first of all, now last week we looked at the Lord's Prayer for himself in verses 1 to 5. Today we're going to look at his words of prayer for his apostles in verses. But we're only going to, we're not going to cover that whole section because it goes all the way to verse 19. We're just basically going to look at uh, what he has to say about his apostles, how he describes them in verses 6 to 11a. So let's read those verses together. All right, not together. I'll read them and you look along. (laughs) But I'm going to start at verse 6, okay? Jesus says in John 17, 6, I have manifested thy name. He's talking to his father, so he's talking about his father's name. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. 
And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. And then he, he begins his petitions. Up to that point, he's been describing his disciples, so that's where I'm going to stop, is in the middle of verse 11. I don't know, are you warm? I am extremely warm up here. Could we turn that down just in, on the thermometer? <laughs> um All right, what we want to see in these verses is the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ describes those for whom he prays. And those are primarily the apostles and other believers who would be living at the time Jesus gave this prayer. You know, there were some 500 um, other men and women who believed in Christ at that time. Secondarily, he's also praying for us in a way, except when he gets very specific that it is the apostles. But notice that he does not utter a single request for them until the part, the middle part of verse 11, when he asks that they would be kept. In other words, that they would be preserved. And then he goes on to also ask that they would be one. So he asks in his petition that they would be kept preserved and unified and we'll talk about those things next week but before he ever makes those petitions he gives a lengthy description of those for whom he prays and what he utters really is as true for you and i as it was of them and to read how the lord describes his own to his heavenly father is very very encouraging or it should be for you and i Have you ever wondered, especially when you're in a a deep spot in your life, have you ever wondered when you're in a low point, maybe at some time, you know, when you're feeling kind of defeated by everything, but mostly yourself, because isn't that where most of it comes from? (laughs) It's ourselves. But have you ever wondered how God views you? How does God see me? And it doesn't really matter what men think of us, because they can be way off track, right? What does God think of me? How would he describe us if he were to state it for us to hear? Well, that's what we have in these verses. In these verses, we have an extended description of the people for whom the Lord makes his high priestly petitions. And it's pretty exciting. It is really nice to hear. (laughs) However, before we look at that description... We should ask ourselves, why is there this lengthy section of description that the Lord gives of his men before he even prays for them? Why does he give this description before he actually petitions on their behalf? Why would Jesus say all these things about them before he finally makes his request? Well, in the first place, his description of them is exactly what comprises the basis of for his requests of verses 11 to 19 and really on through the end of the prayer because in the rest of the prayer he prays for us too but that would also include his apostles there is always in prayer there is always an underlying foundation that allows us the authority to make our petitions Everything that Jesus says by way of description of his followers you see is the basis for his requests. He asks that they be kept, right? Preserved. And that they be unified. But why should the Father keep them? Why should the Father unify them? Well, it's because they are the ones that Christ manifested the Father to. It's because they are the ones that the Father called out of the world to give to his Son. 
It's because they have kept the Father's word. It's because they have known that everything whatsoever Jesus did and spoke was exactly what the Father had given to him. It's because Jesus gave them God's words and they did what with them? They received them. I'm just reading through the verses telling you all the reasons the Father should answer the Son's requests. It's because of all these things. It's because they are the Father's. And because they are the sons and because Christ is glorified in them. Now, we know when we read all that about the apostles and also about you and I, that uh, these guys still definitely had a long way to go in their practice. Not their position. Their position was perfect in Christ. But in their practice, they had a long way to go to deserve this kind of description that Jesus gives of them to his father. Didn't they? I mean, they have kept his word. And uh, Jesus is glorified in them? Well, we'd say, "Mm, maybe not quite yet. (laughs) But Jesus, remember, is seeing them with his past, present, future eyes, isn't he? He's seeing, like we talked about last week, he's seeing the completed project. At the present, we know that their faith was wavering. And they were so unsettled that they were all about to scatter from him, weren't they? Just in a few hours, they're all going to scatter like sheep from him. And one is even going to deny him. And yet he knew that their faith was genuine and that it would be rock strong after his resurrection. And especially after the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and um, indwelt them. And how did he know that their faith was genuine? Well, who is he? He's God omnipotent and omniscient. So, of course, he knew their faith was genuine. But he also knew it. Because God the Father had chosen them when? Since before the foundation of the world. Now, another interesting thing for us to notice in this is that everything the Lord Jesus says about these men, and secondarily all believers, is something that the Father already knows. You know? The Father, for example, knew that he had chosen these men out of the world to be his love gifts to his son. Didn't the Father know that? Yet Jesus is telling him that. He knew that they were his and that he had given them to his son. And the father knew that they had believed that Christ was sent from him, etc. You could go through the whole description. And the father knew all those things, right? So from our viewpoint, we might wonder why in inter-Trinitarian communication, the son was telling the father a great many things that would not needed to have been said. But Jesus told his his father these things anyway, didn't he? Now, how should this then apply to you and I when we pray? Should we feel that it is simply a waste of words to tell God things that he already knows when we talk to him? No, because if you think that through, that would actually mean that we would just never talk to God. (laughs) Because he already knows everything we're going to say. He even knows our requests before we make them, doesn't he? He knows our needs before we even ask for them. But we tell him things anyway, just like the Lord Jesus did, because some of those things are actually the whole basis for us coming to him. And he delights to hear us say them. Now, remember, Jesus was telling his father why he should answer the son's requests for his followers. Now, do you ever pray that way? Do you ever pray that way? Do we? We do. We do. Actually, if you, you know, if you think about it, we do it even when we just call 
when we begin our prayer and call our Heavenly Father, Father. Just by calling him Father, we are claiming our sonship to him, aren't we? We're saying, you know, hear my prayer because I'm your son, I'm your daughter, you're my father. We also do that when we pray in Jesus' name. Because it's stating to God that we understand the whole reason we have access to him at all is only because of our relationship to, to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. We're saying in effect, and we should actually pray this way because it would please the Father. We are saying in effect, Father, I come to you as someone who you have chosen for yourself and someone you have given to your son. Father, I am a love gift from you to your son. I come as a recipient of your gospel, as one who has cast my cast myself on your mercy, as one who has embraced your son. I have no plea but by the blood and righteousness of your son, and I come to you in his name only. That would be a good way to start our prayers, isn't it? Wouldn't it be? We should probably work on that. Now, there's yet another reason for the Lord's rather lengthy description of his men to his father. Not only is it the basis for the son's appeal to the father to do what he asks for his men, but he prayed this description for the benefit of his men, for the benefit of the disciples. He wanted them to hear these words. Remember, he said this prayer out loud. He wants them to hear these words just as the Holy Spirit wants you and I to also hear these words as we're doing so in these weeks. You see, the foundational basis for the petitions of Christ's high priestly prayer have an appeal both Godward and manward. To the Father, as he describes his men, to the Father he's saying, Father, do this for these men and for all my followers because they are yours. That's the Godward appeal. What's the manward appeal? Well, out loud, in effect, he is saying to his disciples, Men, listen to how I describe you and act accordingly. <laughs> this is how I see you. Now, that's your, that's your position in me. Now, walk. Do the practice the way I have described you. When those failing, weak, troubled, overwhelmed with life men heard how they were described by the Son of God himself, who knows us better than we know ourselves... He does. He knows you better than you know yourself. They heard a description of themselves that had probably never, ever entered into their imaginations. It was like, too good to be true. This is us? (laughs) You? Wow. That they could have that kind of standing before God that the Lord was describing would have been absolutely amazing for them to hear. And guess what? There is great joy in this. And remember, this is the purpose for praying this prayer out loud so that his men and so that you and I centuries later could hear it. What was verse 13? What did he say in verse 13? And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have what? My joy fulfilled in themselves. So part of the reason he's giving this description of them is so that it would fill their hearts with joy. Uh, There'd be great assurance for a true believer to view himself as God views him. So remember that. Read this description when you're feeling down and out. Read how God sees you today. Because in his mind, remember, you're already glorified. You know, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he's already glorified in his mind. 
So how does the how does the Lord begin this new section of the prayer for his apostles? Well, he says to his father, and this is in verse six, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest me. Now here again, as we saw up in verse two, the Lord referred to believers as we call them us (laughs) love gifts. He refers to believers as love gifts from the Father, the men which thou gavest me. You ever picture yourself with a big bow on you? You're a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. Now, did you notice that they had first belonged to the Father? What did Jesus say? Look at the exact words. Thine they were. Who did they first belong to? Believers? God, and thou gavest them to me. The God gavest them me. Now, does that mean when the Father gave the love gift to the Son, that the love gift no longer belonged to the Father? Does that is that what it means? No, because look at verse nine. Look at verse nine. For they, that's speaking of those you gave me out of the world, are thine. So, what does that mean? Well, the father gave the love gift to the son, but the love gift is not only the son's, it's still the father's. They still belong to the father. Look at verse 10. All mine are thine and thine are mine. By giving men to the son, the father ensures that they are still kept as his. That's deep, but that's profound and it's exciting, isn't it? In thinking about the Lord's prayer statement of verse 6, I got to thinking, I kept looking at that verse, and I got to thinking that it was true in that the apostles did indeed first belong to the Father. They first belonged to the Father, okay? You know, when Jesus met them, let's just take three of them, all right? Now, we're not going to include Judas Iscariot because he never did belong to the Father. He was false, all right? But... When the Lord met Peter, James, and John, guess what? They already believed in God, didn't they? They did. They were righteous Jews. They believed in the, in the true God, Jehovah God. And they also believed in the promised seed of the woman, the coming Messiah. So they were righteous Jews who believed in God, and they believed in God's promise of the coming Messiah. God then gave them to Christ in whom they also put their faith, trusting that he was the long-awaited promised Messiah. All right? So you get it? So I have a question for you. I tried this on my husband, and he got all mixed up. But here's the question. (laughs) If Peter, James, and John died... Before Jesus ever specifically called to them, you know, when he said, follow me, if they had died before they ever met Jesus, would they have gone to paradise or to hell, uh, to heaven? I mean, paradise or hell. (laughs) So what was your answer? Absolutely. So you see, they would have, they would have gone to paradise, you know, 
Paradise was a section of Hades before Jesus died, and then he took everybody out of that compartment took them to heaven. But if Peter, James, and John had died... Now, this is confusing, because we think they got saved when, you know, they accepted Jesus. But if they had died before not even knowing that Jesus was the promised Messiah, like all the Old Testament saints had to believe in God and believe in the promised coming Messiah to be saved. And if they had believed that, they would have gone to heaven, okay? So that's why... And they're transitional. After Jesus came... Everybody had to then, you know, once he, he said, you know, that John ex- explained that he was the promised lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Then everybody had to believe in God and believe also in Jesus Christ. If they then rejected Jesus Christ, they weren't saved anymore. Hope you're following me. But it was true when he said, thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. All right. Sorry if I confuse some of you that are looking at me puzzled. And that's not in your notes, so... <laughs> Well, what did the Lord Jesus say he did for these men who belong to the Father and have been given to him? What did he say he did? He manifested the Father to them. The Lord manifested the Father's name. Now, does that mean he just told these men, well, the Father's name is Jehovah or Elohim or Adonai or one of the other names of God? No, of course. They already knew those names. He did add a new name. And what was that name? Jesus, (laughs) Emmanuel, God with us. But when the Lord manifested God's name, it means that he revealed God himself through his own person. He showed them God by showing them himself. And he did this, of course, by way of his sinless life and by way of his supernatural works and by his all wise and righteous words. And, of course, by his compassion and his mercy and his grace and his love and all his other attributes. Jesus also told his father that his own, and this is in the latter part of verse 6 or the middle part of verse 6, that they had kept his word. These men had kept his word. Jesus had demonstrated his works and his words, you know, to multitudes of people, thousands of people during his earthly ministry. And although most of those people applauded his wisdom, and they, they appreciated his miracles, yet most of them, the vast majority of them, did not change their lives because of him, did they? They did not surrender to him as their master and Lord. Some people, including the spiritual leadership of Israel, trampled his truths underfoot, even going so far as to say, officially say and conclude that his power came from who? Beelzebub, Satan. Now, the apostles, they were full of fear about the future. They had very troubled hearts. That's why he gave them the discourse, let not your heart be troubled. And they had been very slow to learn. Guess what? They sound a lot like us, don't they? (laughs) Troubled hearts, slow to learn, full of fear. But the great miracle was that they had put their faith in Jesus Christ. Verses 6 to 10 are verses that could really be used to answer an old question, one that continues to be asked today. And that question is, what exactly is a Christian? What exactly is a Christian? 
You know, people answer that question with all kinds of personal identifications. Or oh, a Christian is someone who goes to this church or that church or, you know, there's just you go knock on doors and just see the wide variety of answers that you get from people on what is a Christian. Well, a Christian is one who obeys the 10 commandments, or a Christian is one who who obeys the sermon on the mount, or a Christian is you you, you give me something. A good person. Etc. Or a Christian is someone whose parents and grandparents and so on and so on were Christians. <laughs> you get all kinds of answers. Um, there's so many diff- individual viewpoints. And people come to the conclusion, especially in our land of freedoms and rights, that anyone's answer is just as valid as anyone else's answer. You know, that's the tolerant way. As if there's no common point of reference, no authoritative reference for a clear definition of what makes a Christian. And today, there is a great deal of confusion about the answer to this question. But what if you could get the answer straight from the mouth of Jesus himself, of Christ himself? What if he used descriptions of true believers that gave an authoritative and very capable definition of what constitutes a Christian. Would we then not have a heaven-given answer to that question? We would. And that's exactly what we have here in Christ's description of his men in his high priestly prayer. He clearly is praying for those he regards as his own. And if they belong to him, what are they? Little Christs. They're Christians. And uh, we know that because he distinguishes them from the rest of the world in verse 9. In fact, because they had been given his word and had believed it, had received it, they were hated by the world. These are true Christians he's speaking of here. Christ manifested the Father to these people. And what did they do? They kept the Father's word. And verses 7 and 8 tell us exactly what it is that they have kept. The contents of what they kept is given in general terms in verse 7. And then those general terms are expanded upon in verse 8. But in in general terms in verse 7 are the foundation for someone coming to Christ and knowing him for who he is. So what Jesus is doing here, beginning in verse 7, he's defining believers. He says that they are those who have come to know that all things whatsoever the Father gave him, Christ, have their source in God. Look at the verse. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. You see, the knowledge that saves, that makes somebody a true Christian, is the knowledge of the divine source of Jesus' life and his ministry. It could be summarized as this one statement. It is the conviction that everything about Jesus has its source in the one and true living God. Now, the world has been deceived about this truth, very deceived, concerning who God is and who represents God. They're very deceived about that. There are so many voices out there claiming that they know God. A genuine Christian has come to know, however, that Jesus of Nazareth 
in his person and in his work and in his teaching was entirely from the one and true living God. He represents God, he reveals God to man, and he is, in fact, God. A true Christian believes that. A true Christian is inflexible when it comes to John fourteen six, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. A true Christian is not going to recoil from that statement. And he's not going to fudge on it. And he's not going to try to compromise on it. There is this conviction that has been wrought in his heart by the Holy Spirit. And he knows that that is true. John seventeen eight is then, as I said, it's an expansion of that general statement given in verse 7. Verse 8 explains the whatsoever things that the disciples of Christ believe. And this is why verse 8 begins with the word for. Because the Lord is introducing an explanation of how his men came to know that he was from God. First, he had given them the Father's words. Look at it. He says, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they received them. The knowledge that saves, the knowledge that saves comes and starts with words. Who is our God anyway? The Word. The Word became flesh. It all begins with words. Salvation does not come via some experience. Oh, have you ever heard that? As I came to know God by seeing a double rainbow in the sky, and then a dove fluttered by. I mean, I've heard worse than that. Salvation doesn't come via an experience apart from words. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The process of salvation begins with the word of God. Jesus starts the process with words. So what if you did see an angel? What if you did have a near-death experience? What if you did tell me that you even saw Jesus at the end of your foot? The foot of your bed. (laughs) The end end of your foot. (laughs) Well, that would be pretty strange. (laughs) Washing my feet. Um, And you have you all heard some of these things? You've heard them. Oh, yeah. There's even books written on them. Okay. You if you had one of those kind of visions, you would not know what to think unless somebody spoke. And said something. You need words. There has to be words from God to explain what is happening. You must hear and receive the gospel message. And experience is not enough. And that's exactly the illustration that Peter gives to us in Second Peter chapter 1. When he spoke about being an eyewitness of the Lord's great majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. When the Lord was transformed and let the, his glory from inside glow out. Peter saw it. He was he was an eyewitness of that experience. But guess what? Before there were any words, he misinterpreted that experience, didn't he? Because he said, oh, this is great. Let's build three booths, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
What was he doing that was wrong? He was putting Jesus on an equal basis with mere men, Moses and Elijah. It wasn't until Peter got a word from God that he properly identified that experience. And um, what was that word? Well, God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Don't you dare put him on the same footing with Moses and Elijah, great men of God, but not on the same equality with my son. This is my son. Hear ye him. It was the word of God that revealed the truth about that experience, right? And then Peter went on years later in, when he wrote his second epistle to say that, yeah, he had that wonderful experience, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than a, a firsthand experience of seeing the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed? I mean, wouldn't you all have liked to have been there with Peter and James and John to see that? But Peter says we have a more sure word of prophecy. Would you choose seeing something fantastic like that or having your Bible? Which one would you rather have? Absolutely, you chose right, the Bible. The more sure thing is the Bible, the Word of God. The Word is more sure than any experience. You know, experiences can come from other sources besides God. The devil is really good at uh, having people with all kinds of experiences. You can get experiences from overdosing on Percocet. (laughs) Now, true, the, the disciples did not understand a lot of what Jesus taught, did they? They didn't understand a lot of it. But here's the important thing. And this is what distinguished them from everyone else. They received what he taught. They might not have understood it, but they received it. And that's what he says there. The disciples had heard the Lord Jesus say a lot of things that confused them, but they stuck with him, didn't they? They stuck with him. Remember when Christ had talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in the, in the bread of life sermon back in John chapter 6? You know, back when he spoke that sermon, he had lots of disciples, lots of people following him. But when he spoke those words and then he went on to ask this multitude of disciples, does this offend you? When I say, you know, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, does that offend you? And before they could answer, he asked them this question. Now think about this. He asked them this question. And this is in John 6, 61 or somewhere. What, and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? He had just in the previous verse spoken about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, and then he said, what if you see the Son of Man man ascend up to where he was before? You know what he was saying to them before they could say that they were offended by what he said? He was saying, how can you eat him and drink his blood if you see him ascend back up to heaven? What he's saying to them is, obviously, I have been speaking spiritually here. When I said you must eat my blood and uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, I'm talking about the need to internalize me into your heart. He said unto the, to them right after that. Then he said this: the spirit quickeneth. It's a spirit that gives life. The flesh profiteth what? Nothing. If you were to eat my flesh, that would profit you nothing. That wouldn't get you saved. And then he said the words that I speak. They are spirit, and they are life. So he's making it evident. You know, I was talking figuratively, spiritually here. 
And yet, you know what happened? The response of the many, many disciples that one time followed him was that they turned from him and walked no more with him. John 6, 66. I can always remember that verse because it's 666. They followed the way of the world. They turned from him. And then what did he do? He turned to his 12 and he said, will you go also? Will you go also? And their response is the response of any true, genuine, born-again Christian. When he encounters anything in the teaching of Christ that he doesn't understand. Now, there's been things I don't understand, but I don't turn and walk no more with him. I don't say like the world would, well, that's just too weird. That's too weird. I can't, I can't follow you. That's too narrow. That's too intolerant. That's just too objectionable. That was not their response, was it? The true Christian like Peter will respond like this. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou alone hast the words of eternal life. And we believe, even if we don't always understand, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, once you understand who he is, you know... You know that given time and given Bible study, you will eventually come to understand those things that are initially confusing. Some of those things maybe we won't really understand until we get to heaven, will we? But we just in faith know that they're true. We can count on them. Even if we don't understand them, one day we will. That's a true Christian. Now, another explanation of what of, of the whatsoever things of verse 7 that the disciples um, believe true disciples is found in the Lord's words they have surely they have known surely that I came out from thee now that is an important verse that's an important definition of a true Christian they have known surely that I came out from thee I could that's that's really at the core of Christian belief and we could summarize that statement in one word you know what they believe in single word the incarnation that God became flesh, that God dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us, what Christmas is all about, God becoming man, God veiled in human flesh. They have known surely that I came out from thee. So application question, and this is an acid test for us. Now think about this one, because I tried this one out on Frank too. Poor guy, he was just my guinea pig. But I said, do you think that you could confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, or, or let's leave out the word Lord. Um, well, you could even put that in maybe, but could you confess with your mouth that Jesus was a perfect man, lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead? Okay, pretty good so far, right? You could confess all of those things. With your mouth and even believe him in your heart and yet deny his incarnation and still go to heaven. In other words, you think you could confess that Jesus was sinless and had God with him in a very unique, special way, died on the cross for your sins, but then deny that he actually was God in flesh and go to heaven. See, that second question helped, helped you out a little bit, didn't it? Now, there are a lot of people who believe that, that you can believe all those things and deny the incarnation 
and still be saved, still be called a Christian. And they even argue for it, and they even stand in pulpits across this nation. So this is a very important question. Jesus defines true believers as those who have known surely that I came out from thee. I came out. None of us could say that. We didn't come out from God. We were born by a man and a woman. We didn't come out from God, okay? He was not just a good man. He was not just a perfect man who even gave his life for our sins, as they say. Yeah, he died on the cross. He gave his life for his sins. He wasn't just a good man who gave his life for our sins. He was very God of very gods. A very God of very God. Excuse me. That was a big mistake with the S. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He came out from God. He is the same essence. That's what it means when he says, I came out from. He is the same of the same essence as the one he came out from. You see, we're the same essence as the ones we came out from, which are humans, men and women. But he came out from God. That is the incarnation. That is the virgin birth. Okay, do you know how many are out there saying they believe that they're Christians and they deny the virgin birth? That's very critical. I'll talk about it in a minute. I want you right now to turn to um, 1 John 4. This is an important verse to look at. 1 John 4. And look at verse 1. It says, everybody there? John is speaking to believers. He says, Beloved, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. What's that mean? Put them to the test. When you hear something, put it to the test whether to see whether they are of God. Because why? There are many false prophets gone out into the world. Is that true? Absolutely. So here's one of the ways to know, to try to see if it's a true spirit of God, of something that you hear. Verse 2, Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So in other words, God has come in the flesh. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is what? Not of God. Very simple. And this is even that spirit of Antichrist. Okay, so it's clear then. You can go back to John 17. Or you could st- go to Second John. Excuse me. You just go to Second John because I'll be there in a minute. Th- but what we just read in First John is very clear. Very clear. If you do not believe in the incarnation, which must involve a virgin birth. Why? Why must the incarnation involve a virgin birth? Well, because if Jesus was a descendant of Adam, if he didn't come from God, if he was a descendant of Adam and there was no virgin birth, he would, as all men, he would have been born with the sin nature, the Adamic sin nature. He would have been a sinner. And what good does it do for a sinner to die for our sins? No good at all. Even if he rose from the dead. He wouldn't have, but (laughs) that's hypothetical. Only a man born of a woman only 
could bypass inheriting the Adamic sin nature because the sin nature was passed through the man, not the woman. And if you want to get more into that, you can go back into our study of Genesis where we talked about all kinds of things with, to do with the virgin birth. But this is no small thing. This is not anything small we're talking about here. Do you have any idea how prevalent this teaching is out there? People will say, men, that I could give you their names and you'd be horrified. I won't do that, but I could. Men who say they're Christians and have great big ministries and deny the virgin birth. Test the spirits, ladies. The same, now, the same John who recorded the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17 wrote years later, he wrote these words, and this is in first, uh, second John 7. Second John 7. He says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. What does he say? This is a deceiver and an antichrist. You cannot deny who Jesus is, God incarnate, man, God with us, Emmanuel. You cannot deny who he is and still be a Christian. You cannot deny who Jesus is and be described as John describes Christians in John 17. And how does he describe real Christians in John 17? They are those who know surely that I came out from thee. Incarnation. Well, I want to get off of that critical subject and move to another critical subject. All right? This one is really going to be tough. It's funny because I had two women last week, one that asked me about this first question and one that asked me about this next question I'm coming to, and neither one of them is here today. (laughs) One's in the nursery, so I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, but it's interesting how that works. But there are two ways in which the Bible speaks of us coming to salvation. And we have both of them mentioned in the Lord's high priestly prayer. On one hand, salvation is described in terms of our response to the gospel. Right? One, one way of coming to salvation is by way of our response, human, the human side of salvation. When confronted with the truth of Christ's finished redemptive work on the cross and his victory over sin and death by his resurrection, it is then given to us to believe is it not we hear that we hear the gospel and then we either believe it or we don't believe believe it that's the human side of salvation and probably now here i want you to run over to romans 3 this is important i want you to see this with your own eyes this is probably the most condensed statement in the new testament of the work of god through his son to provide salvation to guilty sinners and it's found in Romans 3.21. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Now you say, what does that mean? It means, in other words, it is possible. It's possible to have God's righteousness without the law. Without the law. Now, they always believed if they obeyed the law, they could get God's righteousness. But here he's saying, but now... And it always has been this way, really. The righteousness of God is manifested without the law. That's really good news because nobody could ever have fulfilled the law to gain God's righteousness. Because all have sinned, right? Nobody ever could fulfill the law except one, which was Christ. All right, he says, so, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, 
even the righteousness of God, which is how? By faith of Jesus Christ. How do we get the righteousness of God? By faith of Jesus Christ. And unto all, oh my, unto all. Have you ever heard of limited atonement? There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus only died for the elect. That when he died on the cross, it was only for the elect, not for the sins of the whole world. Here is one verse that you could use to refute that. It's available. The righteousness of God is available unto all. How? By the faith of Jesus Christ. It's available to all, and it comes upon all that believe. All right? It's unto all, and the righteousness of God comes upon all who actually believe. And then he says, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His argument here is that because all men are in the same circumstances, all men are guilty and sinful before a holy God, therefore the same terms of salvation apply for all. And how is the righteousness of God? Salvation, we could call it. How is salvation obtained? Well, look at verse 24. Freely by grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. See the words in there? Through faith. Look at verse 26. He is the justifier of them which what? Believe in Jesus. This Romans passage tells us that God through Christ has finished our redemption. He has paid the price to purchase us back from the slave market of sin. He has also, it says, completed the work of propitiation. In other words, he has appeased the wrath of a holy God against our sin. And the only required response of people to obtain the righteousness of God and be redeemed is to freely accept it. By what? By faith. By faith. Nothing is to be added to the finished work of Christ. Not our good works. I mean, again, go knocking on doors and somebody will say, well, I've done so-and-so and and I served as a deacon for 26 years or I did this and I... Nothing is to be... It doesn't matter what you did. Big deal. You can't add any... You can't add... You can't talk about your church membership. It's not your baptism. The Judaizers wanted to tell people that they had to be saved and be circumcised. I mean, people are always trying to add something onto the finished work of Christ. But nothing is added. We are simply to collapse in utter acceptance of what God in Christ has done for us. It's freely given. It's by faith. That's it. And this then is why Romans 3.27, look at 3.27, says, where is boasting then? (laughs) What's the answer? It's excluded. And what is it that excludes boasting? The law of works? Would the law of works exclude boasting? No. If we obtained our righteousness and got to heaven by our works, you know what heaven would be all about? Every one of us boasting to the other one, well, how'd you get here? Oh, well, I taught the ladies' Bible study for 25 years. That's how I got here. How'd you get here? Blah, 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 blah. That would be nothing but boasting. And where would, God, where would God's glory be in all of that? <laughs> so what is it that excludes, what is that, com- that does, completely does away with boasting? Verse 27, the law of faith. 
every one of us who will one day stand before God in heaven will be singing the same song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We'll all be singing the same song. No boasting at all. Just glorifying the God who made it possible for us to be there in the first place. Simply believing what he did for us, not what we could ever do for him. So our part of salvation is faith. The Bible clearly, clearly teaches that we are saved by our faith and that salvation is for whosoever. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But here's where it gets difficult. There is another side to salvation, isn't there? I told you last week, both of these are taught in the scripture. They're both taught. Maybe it's one of those things we don't understand, but we have to accept it anyway, don't we? If you're a true Christian, you'll accept it anyway. Both of these are taught in the, Christ, in the, in the Bible. You see, there's two ways you can answer the question, how did you become a Christian? Two ways you can answer it. You can say, I believed in Christ. I believed in the gospel message. You could answer it that way. Um, And it's also proper for you to say, it was because God the Father chose me. You could answer both. 1 Thessalonians 1.4. You want to turn there real quickly? 1 Thessalonians 1.4. The Apostle Paul, again writing to believers, says these words in, in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your what? Your election of God. Election basically means choice. Well... Paul says, I know that you were elect of God. You were chosen by God. How did Paul know that they were chosen? Well, he tells us in verse 5. It's because when he gave them the gospel message, guess what? It came in power. When he gave the gospel, it came in power. Whose power? The Holy Ghost's power. And they, those who he was speaking to, they experienced great assurance of the truth of Paul's words. And they had conviction. And that's how it was with me when I got saved and I heard the gospel for the first time. I don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden I knew that I was hearing the truth. I had great assurance that that was the truth. And I had great conviction about my own sins. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And right there in that moment, it was evident that I was one of those chosen by God. And yet I believed it. You know, my part was I believed, but gave evidence I was chosen. And and he goes on in verse 6 and says, And they became followers of the Lord, having what? Received the word in which, in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. So how did Paul know that they were the elect of God? Well, because the Holy Spirit had power on them to believe. And that's exactly what Jesus talked about in John 6, back to John 6, um, 637, when he said, All that the Father giveth to me will, what? Come to me. There you have both sides. All the Father gives will believe. They will come to me. It's the giving that guarantees the coming. The giving guarantees the coming. Now, as I mentioned last week, when the Father gives love gifts to the Son, those love gifts are eternal gifts. 
God does not take back his gifts to his son. It is the love of the father for the son that makes the love gift secure, right? We talked about that. And if that wasn't enough security for you, we get even more. We really have double, double security in our salvation. Now, if you're not really saved, you have no security at all. But I'm talking about if you know without a shadow of doubt that you genuinely have been saved and are born again, you have double security because Christ also confirms the inter- eternal security of the love gifts that he receives from his Father. When he says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And what does he go on to say? Right, and he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Think about that love gift again. I I spoke about this last week, but you know that beautiful painting that Louise made for the 25 years and gave to me, Louise and Patty and um, Loreen, that beautiful tapestry. I don't know what to call it. What is it? A wall-hanging canvas painting, beautiful, that I have hanging in my living room. They gave that to me as a love gift. All right? And they're not about to come to my house and take it back. It's secure, right? Because they're, they, I hope it is anyway. Cause <laughs> but on the other hand, would I ever give that love gift away? Except if I'm on my deathbed, I'll pass it on to one of my children. But I'm not going to take that to a garage sale, yard sale, am I? No, that gift is secure because I love it because of those who gave it to me on behalf of all of you. It's special to me. It was a love gift from you to me. So in no ways wise, wise am I going to cast it out. You get it? But that's trivial compared to the Trinity members. I mean, God, we're secure in, in, in our status as love gifts because the Father gave us as a love gift to the Son. The Father isn't going to take it back, and we're secure because the Son got it from the Father, and he's never going to cast it out because it's special to him because it's from his Father. Oh, I can't believe I got that all out. (laughs) But the, the Son is never going to reject one single love gift the Father gave to him. So what does that mean? It means on the last day, all will be present. Every love gift will be there. Well, in verses 9 and 10, I've got to wrap this up real quick. Christ continues to give another, a third reason to the Father for why his prayer for the apostles should be answered. He said, I pray for them. <laughs> That's a good reason right there. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. In his role as high priest, who does he pray for? He prays only for his own In his role as high priest, he does not pray for the world. He prays only for his own. Hebrews 7.25 says that he ever liveth to make intercession for them that come unto him, unto God by him. Now, in saying that, and here you need to read your books real carefully when you go home, because a lot of what I gave you today isn't in the books, and I'm trying to give you double lessons by giving you additional stuff here from what you have in the books. But in the books, I, I, I get into this more deeply. But this does not at all mean that Jesus doesn't care about the unsaved, just because he doesn't pray for the unsaved as our high priest. He's our high priest. The high priest in Israel was only the high priest for Israel. He wasn't the high priest for the whole world, right? So in his role as high priest, he only prays for his, for his own. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the unbelievers of the world. I mean, to say that would be ridiculous because he died for them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, 
And if, if that meant he didn't care for the world, then that would mean that he wouldn't have cared for you and I. Because at one point, all of us were of the world, weren't we? All of us at one point were unsaved. So, um, and, and also, as the perfect man, he did pray for the unsaved. This, I'm talking about his role as high priest. He doesn't pray for the unsaved, intercede for them. But in his role as perfect man, he did pray for the unsaved. Didn't he on the cross say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? And didn't he tell you and I in the Sermon on the Mount to pray for the unsaved? We are to pray for the unsaved, aren't we? For the world. And he even say, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So that, just because in his high priestly role, he only prays for us, that doesn't exclude us praying for the world, all right? Well, why does the Lord Jesus intercede for you and I? Why does he intercede for us? Well, let me ask you another question that brings it home. Why do you pray for your children? <laughs> why? Because they belong to you, they're yours, and you love them. Same reason. Christ prays for us because we belong to him. Uh, the Father gave us to him, and he loves us. He prays for us because we belong to his Father, who he also loves. Look at what he says in verse 9, 10. I pray for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. I pray for them not only because they belong to me and I love them, but I pray for them because they belong to you, Father, and I love you. All mine are thine, thine are mine. If you're a genuine believer, you belong to the Holy Trinity. You belong to God the Father, God the Son, and who dwells in you forever? The Holy Spirit. The world might look at you and I and see nothing that marks us out as being very significant or special. Lots of circles even look at us as being ignorant and unsophisticated for believing what we do. Uh, but the masses have always been wrong about truth. You know that, don't you? They've always been wrong about spiritual truth. We may be little insignificant thorns in the flesh to the elite-minded progressives who believe that our backward faith gets in the way of evolving this world into their anti-Christ socialism globalism. That's the way they may look at us. But we are personal treasures of the one living eternal God of the universe. And when we can get a grasp on that amazing truth, perhaps we're going to realize how silly it is to worry or to fret about absolutely anything. When you see yourself as God sees you, as his personal personal treasure and love gift. Well, the final reason he gave to the Father for why he should answer his prayers for his apostles and other living believers dealt with their work on earth in his absence. In a touching plea for his beloved men, he said this. This is uh, verse 10 and 11. I am glorified in them, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. You know, the glory of God was revealed in the human body of Jesus Christ for how many years? Roughly 33 years. The glory of God was revealed in a human body for about 33 years. And now, guess what? The glory of God is revealed in body number two. The corporate body of believers called the church. If this old world is ever, ever going to see the glory of God, guess what? They're going to have to see it in you and in me, those of us who make up the church. Therefore, whatever we do, even the most simple, mundane, 
thing like standing in line at Walmart. <laughs> Whatever we do, we should do how? For the glory of God, that Christ might be glorified in our bodies, whether by life or in our death. You know, at the time of your death, you have a great opportunity to glorify God in the way you accept your death and the way you die. So remember that. But we're not going to die. We're going to be out of here. All right, Father, may those of us who hunger and thirst for the deeper truths of your word have found our satisfaction today in Christ. Father, I would ask that you would make each of us alert to those opportunities to readily give out the gospel and to do so without any embarrassment at all. May we never, ever be ashamed of your son and of your words. And Father, may we with our lives and with our voices glorify you every single day of our lives that we have left. And Father, we ask now that your word would not return unto you void, but that it would accomplish those things for which you have sent it forth this morning. Bless each woman here in ways that you know will be for her ultimate good in transforming her into Christ-likeness, which in turn will glorify you. And we ask these things for your name's sake. Amen.